This brings us to the next section. This is the fifth and final condition, and this is keep the faith. In this section, John develops the fifth condition that those who are children of Yahweh keep the faith. At the end of the previous section, 1 John 5, 4, John introduced the idea of those who are fathered by Yahweh conquer the world. He uses this idea to transition into the topic of Jesus as the God-man conquering sin and death through the water and the blood. John ends his letter with three critical elements of the faith. The correct object of faith, Jesus the Son of God, the assurance of faith, and the result of faith. This section discusses the first of the final three critical elements. In the next and final section, we will deal with the last, second, and third critical elements. This is him bringing everything to a conclusion. Chapter 5, verse 4. 4 is the linking verse. So I'll go back and read 4 from the previous and link it with the fifth. Because everyone who has been fathered by God conquers the world. That's the transitional sentence. This is the conquering power that has conquered the world. Our faith. Now, who is the person who has conquered the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The first critical element of faith is that Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. That's it. Christ is the object of faith. That's it. I think we talked about this with Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is not the hall of faith. If you have read those who teach that Hebrews is the hall of faith, these great men and women who are incredible heroes of faith, you've completely missed the entire Bible. Because if you go back and read their stories, they're kind of jacked up scumbags. And you've missed the argument of the first 10 chapters of Hebrews. Because of all of Hebrews, he's saying Christ is superior to the law. Christ is superior to angels. Christ is superior to Moses. Christ is superior to the priesthood. Christ is superior to the tabernacle. And he gives given all, and then he gives all these examples of the people failing over and over and over again. And then finally he comes in, and the repeating phrase is by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And what he means is. The reason that Abraham was able to do an amazing thing in that moment was because his object of faith was God. His object of faith was not God when he was throwing his wife out as a shield to protect himself from being hurt by Pharaoh. And that was when he was a scumbag, not a hero of faith. His object of faith was not God when he was sleeping with Hagar, taking her as another wife to provide a child rather than trusting in God. Gideon's object of faith was not God when he was skinning his people alive. Gideon's object of faith was not God when he built an idol and then wore it and everybody, including his family, bowed down and worshipped it. David's object of faith was not God when he cut the head off of Goliath and carried it around as a trophy for 20 years. If you read these stories, most of the time they're not amazing people. And what he's arguing is, I've just shown you how Christ is superior. And what I'm showing here is all everybody, every Jew who's really, because we're all the Jews, they grew up on the First Testament. They learned how to read from the First Testament. They, by the time they were 12 years old, they had to be able to, if a, a rabbi randomly picked a passage from the, the, the First Testament, they had to be able to teach on it. They knew it well. 
There's a reason why Paul said, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, because he read the First Testament. And what he's arguing is, look at these horrible people who did horrible things. But there were moments where they demonstrated an incredible acts of faith, because in that moment, their object was Yahweh. <coughs> and the point is, if they were able to do this with no Holy Spirit and no Christ, then imagine what you can do by faith when Christ is the object of your faith. Because if Christ is superior to everything in the First Testament, then when you place your faith in that superior object, then you will be able to do more amazing things for the kingdom of God than they ever did. Including becoming more sanctified and more Christ-like because you have the Holy Spirit in you. And so what John is saying is a critical, first critical element of faith is that Christ should be the object of your faith. If he is the most supreme thing in the universe and the greatest act of love, then he should be the object of your faith. Nothing else. Anything else is disordered love, according to Augustine. Where you put things that are good, because everything in creation is good, but you place them above God, and that's when they become bad. They're not bad in themselves. It's that you've put them in a place that they should not be in. Alcohol is good, but when you put it in a place that's greater than Christ, that only with alcohol can I comfort myself, only with alcohol can I deal with my problems, only with alcohol can I feel courage, then that is disorder law. That's when it becomes bad. Entertainment is good, but only with entertainment can I feel good. Only with entertainment can I escape and deal with my problems. Work is good from the garden, but only when I work do I feel good about myself and feel like that I'm worthy of being liked and accepted. Only when I work hard do people praise me and make me feel good. Only when I'm at work do I have to, can I avoid the messiness of my family and my kids and not have to deal with people who don't appreciate me because children never appreciate you, but people at work give you awards and plaques. There's a reason why a lot of people go back to work and spend many hours there because it's easier than home life with kids. That is when that becomes the wrong object of your faith. And so the first critical element of faith is that Christ should be the object of your faith. And by the way, I can go on with many, many, many more maladaptive coping mechanisms, but I'll just stop there. If you don't know what your maladaptive coping mechanism is, one, I would pray about it. And two, I've got lots of tests for you to take that will reveal that to you. So, assessment tests, not quiz tests. It is our knowing that Jesus Christ is the God-man, truth, who died and conquered death, love, that gives us the confidence that we do not have to fear the world because he has already conquered it on our behalf. This is how we keep the faith. Because we know that he conquered it for us already. That greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That if we place our faith in him as the object, no, it will not always make our life happy-go-lucky, but it will allow our life to be eternal with a reward of conquering because everything else is going to pass away and be burned up like grass. And it's what allows you to rest 
and free yourself from all other objects being the source of your faith. Because only when you truly believe that Christ has conquered the world, then you can give you up your obsession with the object of work and success to conquer your lack of self-esteem or your lack of accomplishment. It's only when you realize that Christ conquered the world that you can give up your obsessive need to get people to like you and accept you and then them need to be in your life all the time in order to feel like you're worthy and that you can get through life. It's only when you really begin to rest in that. And if love dries out fear of punishment, then the truth of Christ's conquer drives out all other objects of faith. All other objects of faith. Faith begins with believing the right truth about God. Because anything else is inferior. And then when it becomes inferior, then we begin to redefine it, and then it's no longer God. That's how the false gods popped up. We begin to redefine God, and that inadvertently popped out another version of God, a false God. You're like, where did all these gods come from? As we decided to have a different definition for God, and out popped Zeus, and out popped Hera, and out popped whatever. And then because we like to name everything, because when we name something, it gives us control, and we do that. But then the demonic world seizes that new God we created and then empowers it and then that thing turns on us and destroys us. Because everything that we create that is outside of God, we end up controlling, but then we lose control and it turns on us and destroys us. And one of the most ultimate examples that we're seeing right now is AI. Okay? Social media. Government. They're turning on us. Verse 6. Jesus Christ is the one who came by the water and the blood. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are in agreement. The truth about Jesus that must be embraced is that he came by both water and blood. What does that mean? Water and blood refers to baptism and the death of Jesus Christ. It's most likely linked into what John said, that I baptize you with the water, but there's one who comes and baptizes you with the water and fire. Now he's not using blood, but he's making it clear that these are two different kinds of baptisms. So what John is saying is that all I have to offer you is a physical, tangible symbol of your outward display of your faith in God. Why do we do rituals? I've mentioned this before, but we do rituals because we are concrete creatures. And when we have abstract concepts, they do not take a hold of our life. We have lots of things that are in our head, and they sound like they make sense, but then we speak them out loud and we're like, oh, no, that, that actually doesn't work. I mean, there's so many times I've been in like limbo states of dreaming or whatever, kind of awake, kind of not, and I'm like, oh, 
that's it. That's the key to everything. And then like you come out of that like half, half right. And you're like, what in the world is I think? That's so dumb, right? Or you're like, oh, that's it. And then you start speaking out loud and you're like, and your wife's listening to you and you're like, oh, wait a minute. That actually doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Sounded better in my head. Or you have this incredible moment, aha, and it is a legit aha, or an emotional connection to somebody or a God or a truth that comes in. And then the world comes along like a pinball machine, smacks you to the next light and paddle. And you're like, ooh, got to go out to eat. Ooh, I got this problem. Oh, with this kid, right? And then you're like, what was that powerful moment that I just had? And so rituals make the abstract concrete. And they force you to slow down and they force you to meditate and concrete that idea so that it becomes concrete and so you can focus on it and it becomes a part of you. It becomes a part of you. So what John is saying is that I offered you a concrete ritual to help you make your outward faith a concrete thing, that it would be real to you. It wouldn't just be like, yes, God, I'm feeling this conviction, John. And you're like, oh, wait a minute, i got to get home and feed the kids. And then you lose that moment. That you then entering into the water would be a physical act in front of people that would create an emotional experience. Because why do some memories stay in your head and others disappear? Because the more repetition the memory is, and the more intense the emotion is, the more likely we're to remember it. And the more likely it is to shape us. So you come to baptism and you experience this incredible, intense emotional experience through a concrete physical action. And it makes your faith more tangible and concrete. And then it imprints itself into you deeper so that it actually shapes you and transforms you so that when you go home and like, oh crap, I got to feed the kids, it's now a part of you rather than something that just lives. And John says, that is awesome and good, but that's all I could offer you. All I could offer you was a vehicle to make your faith more concrete. But there is one who is greater than I who will baptize you in the fire, the Shekinah glory of God. The Holy Spirit will indwell you. There is one who will come along who will baptize you in a way that will allow the concrete spirit to actually indwell you and literally become a part of you and literally begin to transform you and alter you, and connect you to God. And so most likely what John is meaning here is that the only way that fire baptism was able to happen was through the blood sacrifice of Christ. It's the water and the blood that save you. It's the blood that actually saves you. A concrete physical action on the cross where a life is poured out for you on your behalf so you don't have to pour out yours. But then allows you to do the water baptism of a faith. A faith that is more concrete and a more indwelling object because made possible through the cross. And these are the two that testify. The Spirit and your public confession. These testify that Jesus Christ is the one who came. And he came by a physical, outward demonstration of his faith 
He is God, and I serve him. And I represent him and him alone as the object of my faith. And I will prove that by going to the cross through the blood. And that public confession and that cross, the two testify. And then that sacrifice indwells you, and you go through water baptism, and that testifies. Does that make sense? And that's what John is arguing for here. All the First Testament offered you was water baptism. Water rituals. But Christ offers you that and the blood. The other thing that he's arguing here is that the believers, believe, sorry, the false teachers, so that, that's the theological concept. But John is mentioning here because this theological concept refutes the false teachers. The false teachers were teaching that Christ is only a spirit, not flesh. The body is inferior. The body is to be abhorred. And so they often believe that Jesus, the Christ figure, came upon Jesus and either rested upon him or possessed him, entered him at his water baptism, and then it left him at his crucifixion. And so it wasn't Christ who was dying on the cross because Christ can't die because he has no physical body. And the body is abhorrent, so why would Christ want one? And it doesn't benefit you in any way. And lastly, the body is inferior, so what could the death of a body even accomplish? And so they would say that the water baptism is everything. Because it's the water baptism. If you ever saw Martin Scorsese's movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, that's exactly the Gnostic idea that's being portrayed there. Jesus is just this lost guy who doesn't know who he is or where he belongs. I mean, he knows who he is, but he's like, um, that's what I'm blanking the word, um, directionless and his purpose and meaning in life. And he goes to the baptism, he responds to John, and all of a sudden the Christ figure like comes upon him and possesses him. And that's the Spirit of God coming down. And the Gnostics would say, that's the moment when Christ came. And everything there is teachings. And then he left. John is not only giving you this theological idea of the importance of the water baptism and the death, but he's also saying, no, 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 no. It is not just the water that testified. It's also the blood it's not that Christ left before the crucifixion, so therefore it's only the water testimony of the Holy Spirit coming down. But it's also Christ going all the way to the cross and through the cross and into death and through death that testifies. And that's what John is also arguing, that both are essential. That both are essential. There may be there may be, I tend to accept this, there may be an allusion to the fact that the water and the blood came out of Christ's side. And that he was punctured. And I, I tend to lean this way because I, back in Ezekiel's vision of chapters 41 through the end of the book, 48, something like that, Ezekiel envisions a new future temple one day. And this new temple is the body of Christ. And we're told 
that this temple has gates facing every direction, meaning that people from all the compasses, cardinal points of the compass can flood in, that the walls are low and the gates are high, meaning it's not to keep people out. Ephesians says that Christ has torn down the barrier wall, but it allowed people in. And the two really important things here are, and it says the prince will sit in the gate of the temple. That's not allowed. The king is not allowed to go into the temple. Only the Levite is. Only, well, specifically, the firstborn Levite, the priests. And the priests were never kings. They were never princes. So there's this idea of merger of king and priests, which Ezekiel is going to be further developed by Zechariah, who are God says that the priests and the king will be merged together. That's chapter 3 of Ezekiel, or Zechariah, Zechariah. The other thing is we're told that a river of life, a river of water, flows out of the southern side of the temple, and it flows to the Dead Sea and turns everything into abundant, flourish life. And then it branches out to the rest of the world and turns the entire world into the Garden of Eden. And there is no more evil, no more sin, no more death as a result of that. Now, the Jews believe that that's the second temple, and many Christians believe that's the temple being rebuilt in the second coming of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't work. So when you get to John, the author of 1 John, John says in chapter 2, and Jesus says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it three days. And so they did not know he was talking about his body. And he also said, my father's house. At the end of John, he says, my house. So now he's saying that the house is his father. And then at the end, he's saying, it's my house. We've already been told it's his body. And then we talked about this earlier in John chapter 14. He says, I go to prepare a place for you to remain in me. And me are many rooms, not just one holy of holies that one guy can go into. But I'm going to tear down that veil and I'm going to rebuild the temple in my body where many people can dwell in me and I will dwell in many people. And then that becomes fulfilled when the Holy Spirit comes down upon the believers and dwelling them, which the Holy Spirit, the Shekinah glory of God, came down in the tabernacle in the temple. And then people like Peter say that we're living stones being built into the temple of God as Christ is the foundation stone. And in Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are the dwelling place of God. And over and over again, we're called the body of Christ and the temple of God. And so there's a really good idea that most likely that water, the reason that John focuses on that is because no other gospel writer does. He's focusing on the water and the blood coming out of his side, not just to show that Jesus is dead, but also John is specifically developing a major theme that Christ is Ezekiel's temple, that he is the new temple. He is the one who will flow the water into our souls and turn this barren desert callous hard heart, Moses said, and circumcise it and turn it into a garden of Eden so that we can then flow out to other believers into the world and begin to turn them into a garden of Eden. And eventually Christ will come back and turn it literally into a garden of Eden in this world. And so John might be alluding to that and the greater theme of his gospel that the blood in the water testify, that that water is the Holy Spirit flowing out of Ezekiel's temple, metaphorically speaking. And it's that water that shows that Jesus is now completely dead, which then allows you to be atoned for, which will allow the Holy Spirit to enter you. And the water is always associated with the Holy Spirit. And baptism in the water is when you receive the Holy Spirit. 
or the baptism is a demonstration that you have received the Holy Spirit. Does that kind of make sense? There might be an illusion there. And metaphorically, definitely, metaphorically. But why emphasize that in John's Gospel and then emphasize it again in the first John if there's no metaphor there? And we know the Bible loves metaphors and symbology. And they're all connected. They're all connected. Now, I'm not going to fight to the grave on that one, but I do think that there's something there. Water in the Gospel of John is consistently used as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, verse 38 through 39. What the opponents were probably saying is that Jesus saved us by bringing the Holy Spirit. What the author of 1 John is saying is that Jesus saved us by dying on the cross. For John, the water and the blood refers to the outpouring of the blood and the water that came forth from Jesus' side, and he died on the cross. Jesus' sacrificial death was a necessary and vital part of his saving work and could not be dispensed with, as the opponents were apparently claiming. The world wants to deny that. Verse 7 through 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, the blood, and these are in agreement. Now, there are some that argue that this is not in the original manuscripts of the Greek text. There are some examples where there are some, we, if you don't know this, our Bible is made up of over 25,000 different copies of the Bible. Many of them are fragments. They're not all like complete things. And, and one thing I will say is there are some places that we struggle with which manuscripts, some manuscripts leave some things out and other ones put in because when you have fragments, that makes it hard. Or maybe the editor entered some comments in and then over time, we couldn't distinguish whether that's the editor's comment or the thing. But what you need to understand is, despite all that, the Bible is more tested to its accuracy than any other book there is. And there is, unless you have some ding-dong on the Internet, there's nobody who has any micro-knowledge of how the Bible came to be that denies reliability. There's nobody, even the most anti-Christian atheists will not argue that we cannot trust what the Bible has for us. They will say what we have in our hands today is what the original authors wrote. Now what they will question is can you trust the original authors? Did they make things up? And that's a legitimate argument and that's a whole other apologetics. But anybody who's saying you can't trust the Bible have no idea what they're talking about. So I don't say this to make you shake your trust in God or the Bible because even the hardcore atheists know this is original. There's more evidence for it than any of Homer's writings and Plato and all of them and nobody questions their veracity. But there is this one verse that is somewhat disputed because of the way that it shows up in some manuscripts or not. However, these verses tie the testimonies together. It doesn't seem, there's some, there's some times where you're like, I don't know, that doesn't seem to fit the flow and the theology of things. And, and, but this one ties it all together. And it's not saying anything unbiblical. He literally said that this water and the blood testify. And John has already made the point over and over again in his gospel that the spirit, the spirit and the water are synonymous. So to say that there are three or testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, 
and these are in agreement, that totally fits the flow of everything that John is saying. It doesn't feel abrupt and out of the middle of nowhere. It fits the flow. Like I said, I'm not going to die in that one. And you can go look this up and research it if you really want to geek out. Okay, I'll point you to the... There's footnotes here and stuff that will take you there. But there doesn't seem to be a huge reason to fight this or argue against it. Verse 9. If we accept the testimony of men and the testimony of God is greater... Because this is the testimony of God that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, and the one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony, and that God has testified concerning the Son. Verse 10 should be seen as one giant parenthetical statement. It's a parenthetical statement that is explaining verse 9. And so verse 9 is the point that John is making, and verse 10 is the explanation of what he's talking about. So verse 9 says, If we accept the testimony of men, and the testimony of God is greater, because this is the testimony of God that he has testified concerning his Son. And what he's saying is, look, God has testified to this. We accept the testimony of humans all the time. And humans are not trustworthy. Their, their memories make things up. I mean, your memory can change the color of shirts, the direction of things, what people say, all that kind of stuff, right? What they meant by it, the looks on their faces, how much hair they have, all this kind of stuff, okay? And people can give testimony to serve their own purposes, to serve somebody else's purpose. We are finite, flawed people, and yet we accept testimonies as truth. And yet what God is what John is saying is if you accept the testimonies of men, should you not accept the accept the testimony of God himself who comes down and says at the baptism this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, who comes down to the transfiguration and says this is my son, obey and listen in everything he teaches you. It demonstrates it through the cross all these evidences. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony himself, and the one who does not believe in God has made him a liar. So the one who believes has the Holy Spirit living in him, which means God himself is in you, continually testifying to this. Not only do the blood and the water testify, but now the, the thing that the water represents, the Holy Spirit, and the thing that the blood represents, Christ, are in you. And they continue to testify. But if you don't believe in God, and you don't believe in the one that God sent, and yet you say you know God, then you're a liar. Notice how John keeps bringing it back to that first chapter. If you say you walk in the light, then you will follow the truth. And you will love. If you don't, you're a liar. He keeps coming back to that over and over and over again. The writer, John, cannot allow that one can profess belief in God, as did his opponents, and yet reject God's testimony to his own son. Such rejection cannot be excused on the basis of ignorance. The evidence is too clear. 
and weighty. Rather, it is the deliberate, deliberate unbelief, the character of which in the end impunges the very being and character of God. If Jesus is not God's own son in the flesh, then God is no longer the truth, and he is a liar. Not only do you make yourself out to be a liar, but you make God out to be a liar. John has mentioned that already before as well. John, this letter, this letter is basically one giant argument that you cannot separate truth and love and you cannot separate the Father and the Son and say that you know the Father and you're in Him. You cannot say that Jesus is not the God-man and say, but I have love. You cannot refuse to demonstrate love to the believers and say you know God. And you can't say that Jesus does not represent God or is God and say you know the Father. And this is so important. And yes, he's repeating these ideas over and over again. But it's like a cyclical thing. It's like a spiral. As he circles around and repeats this idea, he spirals deeper and deeper. And he makes new connections. And he reemphasizes connections. And he's driving this point home because everything, everything in the world wants to separate these things. And the world is oh so attractive. Our flesh wants to separate these. Our flesh has a hard time with a God-man. Our flesh has a hard time with the fact that we need to obey God. We don't want to obey Our flesh has a hard time to love in a sacrificial way, to give up control and power. Our flesh has a hard time grasping these difficult concepts and then putting them into practice. The devil is doing everything to get you to walk away. That's dumb. You could be your own person. There's no judgment for your your actions. Follow your heart. Just do it and don't judge me. What's true for you is true for you and true for me. And the world has the power of media. Charismatic, attractive celebrities, powerful, enticing music, images, politicians, philosophies, and everything is pushing against you to separate these, to separate the Father and the Son, to separate truth and love, and to separate idea from action. And what John is saying is, no, 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 no. If you say that you love, you must demonstrate it through action. If you say you know the Father, you must also embrace the Son. And if you say that you have fellowship with God and that you're capable of love, you must embrace Jesus the God-man. And you may feel like this is very repetitive, repetitive. But five chapters compared to 80 years of living in the world and being bombarded with this message and your fleshly desires and the devil's temptations. We need to reread the books like this over and over and over again so that these truths get driven and (coughs) drilled into us and become a part of us. Because only when it becomes a part of us that it dries out fear of punishment and that it dries out wanting to make other things the object of our faith. 
And this is what John is arguing. This is what it means to meditate on the word of God. We have no problem listening to songs over and over and over again. We have no problem watching movies over and over again. Are we willing to read God's words over and over again to transform us? Because whatever goes in the eyes of a man or a woman is what they will become. Verse 11, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has eternal life, and the one who does not have the Son of God does not have eternal life. You cannot separate the Son from life. You cannot separate the Son from life. This is why everything that John has been saying all along is so important. Jesus as a sacrifice is radically different in our lives than Jesus as a giver of knowledge. Jesus as a great teacher and a giver of knowledge is not the same power in our lives as Jesus as the sacrifice for us. A teacher can only teach you. Christ's sacrifice allows the Holy Spirit to indwell you so that you have the power Sorry, so you have the ability and the desire to actually do the teaching, to live it out. If you do not get right who Jesus, the God-man, and the Son of God is, then you cannot make sense of the cross. The cross does not make sense to you. This is why a few years ago there were so many people, Christians, who were teaching that Christ, that Jesus, sending his son to die on the cross is child abuse. And what kind of, why would you want to serve a God that's child abuse? The cross does not make sense if you under, do not understand Jesus as the God man. If his death was not a sacrifice, but an accident, then everything in Christianity dissolves. This event in space and time and matter is not a private truth, but affects and shapes all of time and humanity. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. Do not let the world, the flesh, and the devil pull you away. Because what they offer you does not make sense. It is contradictory. It will not give you the ability and the power to experience love and truth and life and joy. And it will not give you eternal life and allow you to overcome the world. The book of Ecclesiastes says, of the writing of books and the teachings of philosophies, there is no end. But the teachings of the shepherd, one great shepherd, are like nails that firmly embed you into the foundation and make you unmovable. They're like goads that lead you along the right, correct path that leads to eternal life. So fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man.